to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15, that's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Welcome back listeners, I'm Daria Brown, and this week I have speech and language pathologist Jolene Fernald. She has her PhD as well, and she is an expert DIR training leader, and she is in Newport Ritchie, Florida, just outside of Tampa. She's the Selective Mutism Clinic Coordinator at Jolene Fernald Pediatric Therapy Services. She's also an adjunct professor at Granite State College and the co-founder of Reconnections Education Center. She specializes in selective mutism and alternative and augmented communication? Correct. <laughs> Welcome, Jolene. It's nice to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. I've known about you for so long, and I'm so glad that you're finally on the podcast. And I've heard your recent presentation at the ICDL conference, which was really interesting and made me realize that because I know in ICDL's online parent support, uh, virtual parent support that I facilitate weekly, a lot of parents have non-speaking children. Either they are older and non-speaking or they're still pre-verbal. And so there's always questions about this. And I always say, gotta ask Jolene. So I finally <laughs> got around to inviting you on and I'm so happy you agreed to come on. So thank you so much. And I, I guess the first thing I want to know about, because it's it's relatively new, is the school you started in your area, which is a DIR floor time school called the Reconnections Education Center. And for those listening, I'm going to put links to Jolene's uh, websites on the podcast blog at affectautism.com. Thanks. Yeah, I'd love to talk about it. So um for a while, I had a lot of clients who were coming to see me for speech therapy who kept saying, gosh, I really wish you would start a school that had this model. I really wish that my child could feel so safe and confident when they attended school. You know, you have this way of encouraging kids and really meeting my child where he is. And um, the idea of, you know, supporting social emotional development is so exciting and for a really long time, I said, no, I said, I'm not interested. It's so much work to start a school. And um, I did start another uh, a program when I first had moved to Florida. And then that program shifted its focus slightly. And um, then I, I kind of regrouped with a colleague, um, Lily Bernhardt, who is an occupational therapy assistant. And we decided that yes, our area absolutely needed a DIR floor time based, um, you know, informed school program. And so we started uh, two, just over two years ago now was when we went through the process of becoming accredited with the state and all of those kinds of details. And then we opened our doors a year ago now, or a year and a half ago, essentially. So the the 2019-2020 um, school year was our first year. And we started with five students, just very small. And then this year we've grown to 11 and we are almost at 25 students for next year. 
So it's been super exciting seeing the, the desire to have a more developmentally based program for uh, supporting our kids uh, with all kinds of individual differences. And I think that that's something that's really unique to our program is that we support children who are not just autistic, but who have a variety of um, diagnoses, even though as a school, we don't really care what a particular child's diagnosis is, we much rather look at the whole um, DIR profile of the student um, and then make determinations about whether we would be able to meet their needs and whether we're a great fit for that family um, and that student overall. So we came up with the, the Reconnections name. A lot of people ask me where Reconnections came from and it actually sort of has a double meaning. So certainly we are, are hoping that we're reconnecting um, children with their, their peers, with their families, with their friends and so on. Um, but REC actually stands for Regulating engaging and communicating. So um, it's sort of those first few steps of the DIR model, um, those first FEDCs, um, those capacities that we really focus on. So we incorporate DIR in every single class. Um, a lot of our staff has been getting trained. Um, so they're at least at the basic level um, of being certified through ICDL. And um, we just incorporate that, that social emotional side of things, those FEDCs and individual differences throughout our entire academic curriculum. I always want to do this in case I have listeners tuning in for the first time. We're talking about the developmental, individual differences, relationship-based model or DIR, and ICDL is the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, which trains practitioners in the DIR model or DIR floor time. So uh, I think it's it's so telling that your enrollment has grown and that that's the best way to tell that you're meeting a need that's out there in the community that in general, most people are telling me everywhere, every service and every school is all so behavioral and the parents that come to the ICDL virtual support meeting every week are saying we want developmental approaches and i know there's so many dir advocates around i've been trying to advocate for developmental approaches in ontario as well and uh, it is an uphill battle but we're making some strides so it's wonderful every time i hear about another dir facility so hopefully uh, there might be people listening that are saying, yes, that's what I've been looking for. And they're not that far from you. So <laughs> that's wonderful. What do or you may think... want to move to Florida where it's nice and warm and sunny? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And how do you um, how do you find that your expectations were versus what's happened a year in? And of course, you know, you had a pandemic to deal with, which definitely s stopped a lot of what you thought was going to be continuing and you've had to make modifications, but that aside, or maybe it's not aside, but what have, what's been your takeaways from the first year or so of running a new school? I think for us, the biggest aha moments have been around how traumatized children and their families have been 
in some of their prior programs. Um, and that may be a private school that was set up more along the lines of a behaviorally based model, or it could have been their public school that also utilizes a lot of behaviorally based um, strategies and um, you know, essentially punishments for those kids and families. And so for many of our families, they were always hearing how bad their kids were or how misbehaving, you know, their, their kids were, or um, what their kids can't do as opposed to being in a more positive framework, which is what we really support and looking at those capacities and what kids are able to accomplish. And then amazingly, when you're given the right supports, um, what their kids can, can achieve. We have a very small uh, student to teacher ratio. So we have a, a one to three um, student, uh, teacher to student ratio. So one teacher for every three kids. Um, and then we also have floor time players that are part of the um, kind of teaching assistant role who help support those kids. So um, we don't require kids sit at a desk. You know, if they want to do their math on the swing, they can absolutely go do their math on the swing. Or if an obstacle course helps keep them engaged because they enjoy, um, you know, being much more, uh, you know, movement and getting that, that proprioception and input into their body, um, then we're going to do, you know, maybe their, their sight words through an obstacle course or something like that. But being really creative and meeting the needs and again, addressing those, um, those needs for support at whatever level the child is already at. And that has been, I think, our biggest takeaway is how desperately families need that level of support and truly how, how horribly treated they were um, and literally traumatized um, coming into us. Yeah, it, it is understandable. And I know there's always a disconnect between providers who have good intentions and think that their intervention is helping and just completely missing the mark and families who are, you know, not wanting that kind of thing. But then there's also sometimes a disconnect between parents and their behavioral style with their child. And have you noticed that as well, where parents maybe just thought, oh, here's a new school. They don't really know about DIR floor time. They come and you notice they're more behavioral and, and they sort of see the difference in their child when the child is supported developmentally and individual differences respected and through that relationship. Absolutely. And parents are such an integral piece to our program. Um, we offer once a month something called caregiver connections, where we do that through now it's through Facebook Live and Zoom. Um, and we have a different topic each, each month where hopefully it's a way to help um, increase awareness and education around various more, you know, developmentally based and relationship based um, ideas and concepts that maybe some of our families aren't as familiar with because they've come in with the background of sticker charts or reward systems or red light, green light, yellow light kind of models in a classroom, you know, when their child gets too loud or withholding something until their child says, you know, can I please have my, you know, teddy bear or whatever. So um, we have definitely found that supporting those families, they have their own kind of come around, but it really, um, I can't minimize the amount of trauma and um, 
negative experiences that these families have had. And I was one of those parents. I have a daughter who's autistic myself. And so she's an adult now, but um, we had a very negative experience in the public school system. And I'm a, you know, a professional who has a lot of background and, and education. And yet I still struggled with trying to advocate and support her in the public school system. So for many of our families, um, and there are some wonderful public school system, you know, supports. I don't want to, you know, negate that. But uh, for many of our kids that are coming here, they did not have those positive experiences and those families really struggled. So they get to see what their kids are actually capable of and um, that their kids want to come to school every morning and that they're excited to come in and, and enjoy the time with, with peers, as well as um, we have the best floor time players here. I'm biased, obviously, but uh, they're, you know, fantastic with the kids. And so to see them playing and um, joking and jumping and running down the hallways. And, and it's just really exciting to see that. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. And is, is the school publicly funded? Is it a private school? Do parents pay out of pocket for it? It is privately funded, um, but in the state of Florida, we have two scholarships that families are able to access. So depending on the amount of funding that you receive from those scholarships, your contribution may be minimal. So our tuition is 25000 for the school year. We run the regular um, nine-month school year from August through uh, the beginning of May. And then we... Um, with that that funding so let's say just for the sake of math um you um maybe you get uh what fifteen thousand dollars for your your scholarship that remains um the the ten thousand is remaining and then we break that into 10 monthly payments that way so um it just depends on what kind of scholarship funding but all of our students receive some type of scholarship funding, um, and that's either the McKay Scholarship for Florida residents um, or the Gardner Scholarship. Um, those two would be the, the types of scholarships. And do you guys offer summer programming as well during the three months off? So our summer programs um, this summer, we did offer a regular camp style program last summer, even with COVID. But this year, we've decided to offer individual floor time sessions um, as, as kind of a replacement. And that way, we have multiple uh, floor time uh, clinicians that can then provide that um, intervention over the summer. Awesome. You're listening to Affect Autism with Jolene Fernald this week, speech and language pathologist about her school that is a DIR floor time school near Tampa, Florida, called Reconnections Education Center. We will get back to her in just a minute, getting into her specialty of selective mutism and alternative and augmentative communication devices right after this word. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the parents menu at ICDL.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship 
to promote and support their developmental potential. Now let's get back to our podcast with Jolene Fernald. I had no idea that you were a parent of an autistic child as well, uh, who's now an adult. Did that influence your trajectory in your career? It must have. It did. Um, our story is a little different. So as you probably know, females are often diagnosed much later. Um, and so my daughter was actually diagnosed with selective mutism when she was three. And so for a very long time, we thought that it was the underlying anxiety, sensory processing and so on with her mutism. Um, and she was always, uh, I think she would admit herself, you know, she was quirky. Um, she had various interests that didn't necessarily match up with her peers um, and various passions that may have not, you know, been similar to whatever age stage she was kind of going through. And so she was um, diagnosed at 19. So she's, she's almost 20. She'll be 20 actually in a month. Um, so she was only recently diagnosed. And some of that was really because I'm not a big diagnosis person as a, as a parent. I don't really care what labels. Um, I cared much more about where her capacities were and you know what her individual differences were. And that's how she saw it as well. But then as a young adult, she started to feel like, I think that she could advocate for herself in a much different way by being able to say I'm autistic. And now people have a little bit more awareness, hopefully understanding of what um, autism is and what that, the variability in autism. You know, I think for a long time, we had that perspective that, um, that autism meant that you were nonverbal or that you were, um, cognitively impaired in some way, or, um, you know, again, there were stereotypes that went around the autistic label and, um, she knew that that didn't describe her, but now as a young woman, um, and now there's, you know, a really powerful movement of these amazing, you know, females in general, but I think just overall autistic community, um, that are really, able to celebrate um, those differences. And so I think she feels really empowered and able to advocate for herself in a much more powerful way um, at almost 20 years old. It's so awesome. <laughs> uh, so you, you mentioned that she was diagnosed with selective mutism and this is one of your specialties and I'm guessing that that's why as well. Can you tell the listeners what is selective mutism and what is situational mutism and describe a little bit about your work. Sure, sure. So when my daughter was diagnosed at age three, um, I had very little background about selective mutism and really were, selective were you mutism. Al were you already a speech and language pathologist by then? I was, yes. So okay. I had been a therapist for, I think maybe four or five years at that point. So I was still fairly new to the field, but had been out long enough um, where, you know, I had had a caseload, you know, under my belt for a few years. So when she was diagnosed, we, um, we had known that there was something, you know, different, um, in the sense that she could talk really amazingly well, she was actually very hyperverbal and, and really amazingly skilled at, you know, verbalization and communication at home. But when we would leave our house, she would shut down and withdraw and, um, tilt her head down and avert eye contact and so on. Um, 
And so ironically, her preschool teacher called and said, you know, I think she's autistic. And I said, she's definitely not autistic. I see how she is at home. You know, what are you talking about? Um, come to find out that selective mutism is an anxiety-based disorder. And the criteria requires that you are verbal in at least one setting and that you are mute and unable to, to speak in um, at least one setting. So that's the easy criteria piece. There are a few other components to it. But um, so when we started to try to get support for her, um, most of the folks that I came across either didn't work with children as young as three or they really didn't have any background in selective mutism. And so I started getting into the research and getting involved with um, the national organizations and trying to, and this is 17 years ago. So um, while we have the internet at our fingertips now, it wasn't quite the way that it is as accessible, you know, now it wasn't like that 17 years ago. So um, you know, we had listservs back then and, and things like that, that we were trying to make connections. And as we started to develop a program that seemed successful for my daughter, I had the aha moment of thinking, well, if it's working for her, perhaps it would work for other families. And if I have a lot of resources within my reach, we lived in New England at the time. So I had access to Boston Children's Hospital. I had access to Dartmouth Medical um, Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire. Um, and those places did not have a lot of expertise in working with SM. I basically said, well, if it's worked for her, you know, my sample size of one, perhaps it will work for other kids and their families. And so I developed an assessment and treatment clinic for selective mutism. Um, and because what worked for my daughter was a multidisciplinary developmentally based approach, I didn't know it was DIR at the time. I was not certified in DIR at the time. Um, but because I saw that that whole perspective, that whole approach worked best for her, um, I made the decision to utilize that model for all of our, our clients coming in. And I've now seen over 2000 kids with SM who have been extremely successful in, um, remediating their, their selective mutism. So, um, yeah, that was really even how I got interested in DIR. Um, I only had my master's at the time, and a lot of the treatments for selective mutism are behaviorally based, coming from more of a psychological perspective. So the idea is um, to reward for brave talking. So when your child says hi to a a teacher in the morning, they receive brave bucks, for example, and then those brave bucks can be turned into, um, you know, purchasing a reward or um, treat at the end of the day. Um, and that did not work for my daughter. Um, because if she had been able to, to do it, she would have done it. it, it you know, she would have, she wanted it, she wanted whatever those treats were, and those carrots were, and so on, but she just could not, help herself to overcome that anxiety, that underlying anxiety, which really coordinated with a lot of that sensory processing and some of those other challenges for her. And so she wasn't successful. And instead, all that did was, was beat her down essentially and make her feel worse about herself because she couldn't accomplish the goal that she, that she wanted to. 
Um, so that was part of my, my DIR entry um, process. I participated, I was one of the first cohorts um, for the ICDL graduate school that Dr. Greenspan created. And um, I got certified as a, as a DIR practitioner through that process and realized that so much of what we had done to support my daughter was actually part of the foundation of DIR um, floor time as a, as a method, as a model, um, as a framework. And so that was super, it was exciting to know that I, I was doing it without knowing that I was doing it. And it just felt so, so right um, overall. Now, I can imagine that there might be parents who look up selective mutism. Maybe they come across this podcast and they hear what you say and they might be say, thinking, well, my daughter or son can speak at home and they're not speaking at school. So it's their choice. So you mentioned yes. they're not able to speak. Your daughter wasn't able to. So can you describe to listeners how she was able to at home but not in other situations. You alluded to why, but I think um, explicitly addressing that will help some of the parents that are really confused and and really struggling to to help their children. Sure, sure, absolutely. So what happens is if you think about the nervous system, your body will do one or more of six things, either fight back, either flight, which is run away, or freeze, which is, can be that vocal paralysis for selective mutism, or it may even be a physical paralysis where your whole body can't move. It can also fawn, which is you go along with what other people are suggesting or doing in order to not have more attention brought upon you or no more spotlights on you. You can become fatigued and exhausted because you're working so hard and that cognitive load is just overwhelming or the final one is flood where you may become flooded with emotions and have, you know, a, a tantrum for, you know, younger kids. You may just become emotional and sob and cry. You may become angry and frustrated, um, but just a, this flood of emotions. So you could have any one or more of those six um, F words. Those are F words we can use. That's what I always tell the, the kids and the parents. And so for our kids with selective mutism, it's not a conscious choice or decision, which a lot of people say selective mutism means they're selecting who they're going to speak to um, or selecting which situations they're going to talk in. It has nothing to do with that. And that's really what that anxiety is. It's not a specific phobia or fear um, of speaking, although some kids do have that as well, but it really looks at much more around the side of um, this underlying anxiety or this underlying fight, flight, freeze, bond, fatigue, flood response. So um, now back when I was talking about the criteria for diagnosing SM, I mentioned that, you know, it's kids that can speak in one setting and can't speak in another setting. It can be very, very frustrating for us as parents when you see your child be really confidently talking at home and then you go outside to a restaurant or, you know, into the grocery store and somebody comes up to you and says hello to your child and they completely freeze. So for me as a parent, that that was really frustrating and, and a struggle. But um, what I think the other component for the diagnostic criteria that's important for, for your listeners particularly is 
one of the pieces says that you cannot have selective mutism if you also have a diagnosis of autism, which is really interesting because many of the folks that I work with have a lot of individual differences that would be co-occurring similar to an autistic profile. So again, I don't necessarily care about labels, but many in our autistic community have identified what's called situational mutism, partly because of the name, you know, that, that, that selective mutism says you're not supposed to have the same, you know, mutually uh, occurring um, diagnoses. But the second piece has to do with in specific situations are, are sometimes autistic folks do struggle with being able to be verbal. And when that cognitive load becomes too much, you may become fatigued, you may become overwhelmed with emotion, you may completely freeze and be unable to verbalize, in which case you have to rely on augmentative or alternative communication, that AAC. So many of the autistic folks that I work with often use um, text-to-speech or additional um, apps and things to be able to communicate when they become overwhelmed in those situations. And the overwhelmed aspect is absolutely the same as what occurs in selective mutism, but because our medical system says that you're not supposed to have that same diagnosis. Um, if you have that diagnosis of autism, um, the autistic community is preferring situational mutism as a label, I guess, to describe it. That's really, really interesting. My, my son has an autism diagnosis since um, he was three. Now turning 12 um, in, in May, he is super verbal chatterbox, but I notice we would go to train shows all the time and loved model trains before the pandemic. We would go every weekend to see different train shows, go to train displays, go on layout tours of people's homes who had model trains. And of course we were doing this for six or seven years. Every, every man who, every model train dude knows my son and they always say hi and how are you and blah, blah, blah. And they have a special place in their heart for my son and they know he's autistic and he will, get terrified and overwhelmed and he'll pause i'll say oh look there's bruce or jim or mike or whoever uh let's go say hi or something and he will absolutely avoid even though i know that's one of his favorite layouts he doesn't want to go anywhere near there and i think it's because he just doesn't want to be put on the spot to have to speak or socialize and it happened so many times that I never, ever thought about this idea of situational mutism, but it's, it's not necessarily that he can't speak because he could speak to me if I ask him something, but it, it's maybe more of a social avoidance thing. I'm not sure what it is. Does that? <laughs> well, it may be. Yeah, no, I think that it makes perfect sense. And it may be that the sensory overload in that moment. So remember or maybe you don't know this, but the vestibular system is that police officer in the brain that directs all of that sensory input, right? So what we're seeing visually, auditorily, our taste, touch, smell, all of those senses, those main senses are guided by that vestibular system, which has to do with our inner ear and, and you know, where we are with regard to being upright and so on. So what I found for, for many of my, my um, clients is that if that system is on overload and that that police officer is sleeping on the job and not getting his work done and directing and guiding that input to where it's supposed to go 
that means that that is not processing the information the way it's supposed to either. And so as opposed to perceiving it as a non-threat, uh, is perceiving it as danger. And you don't have any response, any, uh, you know, responsibility over kind of how your body reacts to that. And then your body has that response. So my guess is based on what you described is it could be his anticipation, sure, of that, you know, needing to have some, some verbal communication, but it may be that it's noisy at that moment, or it may be that what's coming into his system visually is overwhelming. Um, and the, the anticipation, anticipation of all of that together, he just kind of, you know, comes up and goes, er, you know, I can't move forward. I can't, I can't go over there. I can't make my mouth talk. I can't make the words come out. Yeah. Even I notice on zoom meetings with family during the pandemic, we'll say, oh, come, we're going to say hi to grandparents, you know, cousins, whatever. And he'll sort of look and literally within three seconds, ah, and he runs away and he has no yeah. desire to come back. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And I mean, it could be for a number of reasons, but definitely that situational mutism, I think it impacts more folks than what we recognize. Um, and I think it's really important for us to start to get that information out there. Yeah. And you will be getting that information out there because you have a book coming out and uh, you mentioned you were going to, before we re started recording, you mentioned you're going to be starting a new group for selective mutism can you tell us about your new book, when it's going to come out and, and about this group? Sure, sure. So the book is going to be a comprehensive guide about selective mutism. So it will incorporate this whole entire profile idea, right? The DIR model of looking at selective mutism. So as opposed to many of the clinicians who are more in the mental health fields, um, the psychologists and social workers and so on, often they look at the one symptom of not talking um, and focus on the not talking as opposed to those of us who are DIR clinicians who really look at an entire profile, right? A whole view of a child. So the book is going to incorporate um, what DIR is certainly, but then specifically, what are the, the typical individual differences that we observe in many of our kids with selective mutism? Also, what different types of interventions may support our kids with SM? So whether that's um, hippotherapy or maybe um, the interactive uh, you know, listening system, um, there will be a section on regular pharmaceuticals um, and I'll plug it, um, Dr. Josh Fader, who I know um, has been on your program or involved, um, but he is writing the chapter on the pharmaceutical intervention section um, from a DIR perspective and how to support our kids from that, from that lens. Um, so I'm really excited. The contributors to the book are, many of them are DIR practitioners, um, as well as training leaders through ICDL. So that's exciting to have their expertise contributing for the, the sensory and motor sections. Um, I will be doing the majority of speech and language with another colleague. Um, and then looking at uh, that, like I said, that whole profile. The book also will have a website associated with it. So when I'm talking about FEDC1, you'll be able to go look at what does FEDC1 look like for a kid with selective mutism. Or when I'm talking about social problem solving and really trying to um, do multi-step sequencing and so on for FEDC4, 
then you're going to be able to go and see what that looks like. Um, we've had some really generous parents who are willing to share their, their kids with, with the world. So um, I think that that will be a unique area, you know, and an added resource for the, the book um, as a companion site. And then we'll be providing um, trainings and webinars and so on as well, so that folks um, can, can become, you know, more of an expert in providing a DIR model for intervention of selective mutism. Um, and that'll be just DIR selective mutism is what we're, what we're calling it. Nothing too, uh, you know, too different, but it will just be DIRSM or DIR selective mutism. Um, hopefully if all goes well, the book will be released, um, probably by the end of May, um, hopefully the beginning of June at the very latest, uh, just depending on publication and so on. And then, um, the website at the same time. So we're really excited for it and, um, looking forward to having families have an alternative to that behaviorally based intervention model for SM, especially. Now, did you say this June? Yes. Oh, that's so exciting. Yes. <laughs> it is. If, if I can only get all of the work done. Yes. <laughs> that's where we're at. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I have a yeah. suggestion. It might be a really great addition to your book to have a chapter or a section written by your daughter from, or, or written by you from her perspective, uh, as to what it's like and what it's like to feel the behavior type interventions that she might have had at school and the type of support you were providing for her. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about it. She, um, she is getting better at sharing some of those emotions and some of those feelings. She just started her own blog. So that's exciting. Um, I don't think that it's going to be anything, you know, an ongoing process for her necessarily, but I think for right now it's somewhat therapeutic, um, because she's achieving some goals that she had set for herself. And I think she's really super proud and wants to share those. So, um, we've definitely talked about it. Um, the other part that we're, we're hoping to include is even siblings, um, and what the sibling side of things look like, um, because that can be really challenging for, for family dynamics overall too. So, um, it is very unique in the way that the book will be written and, um, we are doing a self-publishing model. So we're able to update and add and edit as maybe new research becomes available or, a different perspective comes out or something like that, that we can add to it. So we're excited about the, the possibilities for it. This is amazing. Well, I know parents are going to love having all of this information. Well, thank you so much. This is Jolene's website, Jolene Fernald Pediatric Therapy Services. And I'll put links to all of this in the blog post at affectautism.com. Here's Reconnections Education Center, her new school. That is a DIR school supporting children who want a more developmental approach. You do not need an autism diagnosis. It is for children that need that extra support. So thank you so much, Jolene. It was wonderful to finally have, finally have you on the podcast and all the best with the new book. We will be eagerly awaiting its release. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a, a fun conversation. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions. This episode of Affect Autism was brought to you by affectautism.com. This is an independent endeavor on my part without any sponsorship. 
please consider supporting the podcast and the website for as little as $5 US a month to receive extra bonuses, including floor time videos access, your questions answered on upcoming podcasts, my weekly insights video with my takeaways from each podcast, and more. You can become a member or a star member of Affect Autism at patreon.com slash affectautism.